Magic Club. Together, we'll discover inspirational stories of creative entrepreneurs living out their dreams, doing the work they are most passionate about, and building wealth in magical and fun ways. While building a six-figure income as a writer and coach, helping other women to launch their dream businesses, I've connected with so many incredible people and seen it proven again and again that you can thrive financially doing whatever it is you are passionate about. I'm here to share life-changing strategies for mindset, making money, and reaching more people with your work in a business and life filled with creativity, freedom, and fun. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. I am very excited to introduce our guest today. We have Liz Kimball, who is a creativity catalyst, a speaker, writer, and coach who is dedicated to helping women visionaries actualize and amplify their signature creative work so that we can build a better world. She's a former award-winning actor, dancer, and director. She writes about the intersection of womanhood and creativity and creating a future we can't wait to wake up to. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz. Thank you for having me. So me and Liz go way back. We were just sharing. I joined Liz's creative community, which was called The Collective, when I first moved to New York and I wanted to make friends. And that's really what has happened. I, I was in The Collective for six years and met so many amazing people all over the US. Um, so I'm really, really grateful for Liz and for her part in my internet community. We actually started out um, doing in-person workshops in New York before you moved the collective online. And I used to get the bus down from upstate for like two hours to come and sit and hang out with everybody. And uh, yeah, you've been through many evolutions since then, but I'm so grateful for you and your work and all of the incredible people you've connected me to. I love hearing that so much. It makes my heart sing. And, and I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. Yeah. So I'm super excited for whatever nuggets of wisdom are going to come up in our conversation today. So first of all, Liz, for, for those of you who don't know you, please tell us like, how did you get to doing the work that you do now? Okay. So my mom loves to tell this story about, so when I was a kid, like I think it was about three or three or four. And my dad was a singer in a church choir. Like he was sort of paid, like a paid professional singer in the church choir. I was raised totally agnostic. So my parents were both raised with pretty sort of dogmatic religion. And they were like really clear. They were like, she's going to choose for herself. So it was like a totally wild card. But anyway, but I went to church every Sunday because it was cheaper than babysitting. And so my dad would kind of be the in the choir and like process through the choir. And I would just like hide in between the choir and then like color in coloring books on the floor of the choir stalls while they would like have the service. But anyway, so like you go to church every week as a three-year-old, like it really gets, <laughs> gets in your kind of being. So my mom, so the story my mom tells is we're driving in the car one day and I was like, so mom, um, you know, is there a her book too? And she's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, there's a hymn book at church. You know, why is there not a her book? And, <laughs> you know, I think about what I'm doing now, the life that I have, the work that I do, which I never could have imagined, which didn't even really exist in the kind of <laughs> ecosystem of the 80s that I grew up in. Um, but that feels like there feels like there's such a seed there, you know, either is going to become like 
a bad stand-up comic or like a bad writer of puns, or I was like going to become some kind of a feminist advocate. And um, there, you know, it really is true in some ways that like there was that book that said, this is the way things go. Obviously hymns are beautiful. And I actually have really positive memories of this church, but I think I have been really interested, whether it was on a subconscious level and now, you know, it's much more conscious about like, what is the her book? You know, like we have been living with a book of rules and a book of conditions. I know so much of your work is devoted to that too, that were not written for, for women and other marginalized communities. And so I think one of the reasons I'm so grateful to be alive now is like we are writing the new book. And I didn't know that when I was three, but I think that, you know, there was a nugget there. And then the other really foundational piece of my kind of early childhood is that kind of around the same time, I was raised, it's funny. So like we weren't raised with religion, but I was sort of raised in this very experimental community, which I've now learned to sort of call cult-like. I'm not going to call it a cult, but there was like a real, you know, it's not religious, but it was a very intense and, um, you know, specific way of living life, of living families that people were really experimenting on in the 70s and the 80s. And I was like this experimental test case essentially as a kid. And I went to their pilot nursery school. And, you know, so many children experience the, my experience there is what I've now learned, you know, through lots of great therapy to understand as trauma and, you know, basically 100% not okay. But as a result, you know, as a little kid, I was really clear kind of throughout the whole thing. I was like, something is up. This is weird. What they're doing to us is not okay. And it took me a, a, a really long time to be able to say that out loud, to be able to say that to my parents and, and sort of people I knew, even though I was like inside of my being, I was like, so clear. Um, and so as a result, you know, I think that like girl who is like, is there, is there a her book, you know, pretty like outspoken. Um, I became really shy for the first kind of 10 years of my schooling because, um, you know, because I just kind of had this like really powerful knowledge (laughs) inside of me, like so many kids do. And I didn't, I couldn't voice it, you know, for a variety of reasons. And I then later went on to figure out how, and that was like really pretty foundational part of my life to be able to say out loud that this, you know, I don't believe in what was happening. Um, But that pattern kind of repeated itself throughout my life. And it sort of taught me that as uncomfortable as it was, like my voice was the tool. That was the way. That was sort of how I was going to advocate for myself and get out of whatever situations I didn't want to be in. Um, And then, you know, if I look back now, I think what that situation also taught me is like, the people who um, people who try to tell us what to think and what to believe and how to behave is really just a way of sort of perpetuating these unequal kind of systems of power, um, even if it's masked in sort of this like enlightenment kind of package. So I think, you know, that's another thing that I'm so curious about in my professional life is really like how we kind of... Un- untangle ourselves from that, um, I mean, imbalance of power that we're all working toward right now because it's like a huge collective effort. 
Yeah, I think that that's, I didn't know a lot of that about you. And I think this topic of like cults is so interesting, particularly in America, because I, I've noticed a lot of my clients have had very similar experiences. I mean, obviously not just in America, but it is very common. And a lot of my friends like love talking about this, the kind of philosophies of, of cults and like what it is, because we're, we're all in a cult on some level, right? Like our, our culture is a cult. And I, there's something about America, I think, because it's so big and it's so spread out, there's more of these opportunities for kind of these little micro cultures to be going on. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's so interesting once you start challenging the belief systems that we've grown up in and like you say, like matching it to how it feels, um, and yeah, what kind of conversations come uh, spring up from that? So I would love for you to share because I know your one of your superpowers is really giving voice to a lot of these unspoken challenges that, particularly as women, particularly as creatives, um, we've been living with but haven't really been able to fully understand or articulate um, a lot of the time because of the trauma that's associated to it. Um, so, what would you say are some of the like key conversations that you have seen in your work? Um, with your clients that have really just like opened up a lot of relief when you start giving voice to, to those aspects of our experience? So, so much of it stems really, I mean, you said voice, but around, around using our voices, I think. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is so I like then became extremely shy and sort of had to Re, and I was a ballet dancer. And so I literally was not using my voice. And I had to relearn in my adult life and through, particularly for me, it was through acting training, but like how to use my voice, um, which I think I ended up realizing in this, you know, I'm sure this happens to you, Sarah. It's like, we think we are struggling with this very singular thing. And then we start talking to other people and we're like, this is in the water that we're swimming in. Like at, you hear the same story, but in slightly, you know, unique and different contexts from every woman. And you're like, this is not us. This is not, you know, the fact that it takes so much effort and work and courage for so many women to use their voices and to advocate for ourselves in whatever context it is. It's like, okay, so then um, this is like belongs to the culture, not just us. So I think the conversation I noticed that tends to have so much resonance is is contextualizing some of these problems that we have labeled as personal, especially in the self-development world. So like, you know, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome and perfectionism and procrastination. All of these things are real. And we like, it's really good to name like, what is today? A Tuesday, you know, like I've probably struggled with all three of those things before my lunch break, you know, like they, it's a daily practice, but we, I think we were taught that's, oh yeah, you have perfectionism. You have imposter. That's something that's, you know, you have to work on that. Like that was definitely what I was taught as a kid. You're so, you know, you have so much self-doubt. You have to really work on that. And I think my answer right now is no, the culture needs to work on it. <laughs> not that I'm not going to keep doing my work, um, but understanding, you know, something I talk a lot about with the women that I work with. And I think we've talked about it, Sarah, is like, I call it now the Cassandra wound, but you know, if we look back at the ancient Greek myth of Cassandra, um, who essentially was this prophetess and had incredible vision and, and then voiced the visions that she saw. 
and um, which was then, you know, used against her. And she was raped by Apollo. And, you know, because she didn't sort of follow in what he wanted for her and sort of give him her sexual favors, she was her her curse that was given to her was that her she would have the vision that she had, but no one would believe her. And when we sort of like every time we tell that story, I think we feel it in our bones and we feel it sort of inside of it. We all sort of have some kind of connection to that. Like, oh, when I wasn't believed, you know, or sort of like that's, even if that didn't happen to me specifically, there's somebody in my lineage, you know, and in our collective lineage. And so understanding that when you're sitting there at your computer, trying to write this beautiful memoir that you're obviously born to write, and it's going to impact you know, people that would like really love to grow from your story. And you're sitting there being like, why can't I complete this chapter? Or why can't I complete this draft? Or why can't I, you know, why am I struggling here? Um, It roots back to our ancient stories and who's been telling the stories. Not that that solves it, but I think it's helpful to know the context. So I think if we start contextualizing in that way and then being like, and you know what? We're not going to wait for the culture to change we are going to essentially green light our voices anyway. But um, acknowledging that to green light those voices means that we're sort of overriding this, uh, you know, status quo that (laughs) was not designed for us. Yeah, this is such a great conversation. And I mean, it's in green lighting our voices that the culture changes, right? And the reality of that is often re-trauma like re-traumatizing ourselves and and being putting ourselves out there and then not being believed again and then getting the pushback or, you know, being denied. And just really, it's like going off and going through that process of triggering what is not aligned and what isn't balanced in order for it to shift. Something that really shifted the way I think about the creative process is I was listening to a podcast on... it was Oprah and I think it was Brene Brown's podcast, but it was Oprah and sort of the trauma specialist that she has sort of partnered with and done, you know, some work and talking with. Um, But he said on the podcast that you can't have curiosity without safety. So safety is like bottom line. Um, When, you know, when you're working with young kids, right? Like you, you have to establish safety before they can be imaginative and curious. And I think that when we're thinking about our creative process and our creative work, like establishing safety, whether that's sort of in our own kind of internal processes in the gestation phase and also out in the world, like we can't control the safety in the world, but we can work on it internally and in our communities. Um, It's like a prerequisite to creativity, which was, I mean, Sarah, I spent multiple decades in the creative industries (laughs) No one taught me that and no one really talked about it. In many ways, I think a lot of the environments were unsafe. So, so much of, you know, some of the thinking I'm doing now is like, how do we balance that edge of like, so we need safety to create for you to have your curiosity and your imagination. And um, we want to be on our edge. We want to be in the uncomfortable places. So knowing that like it's a both and thing, but um, kind of knowing that really helped me understand why uh, so many of us have struggled without sort of being able to name it. So good. I love this conversation. Thank you so much for bringing it. And um, I would love for you to share a little bit about 
like how, what are some of the ways that you've been making it work as a mom to a young kid, as an entrepreneur, as a creative? And I know you've got your second baby on the way. Um, I can't imagine what that's like, but I know that you are amazing and always find a way um, and a space for your creativity. So I'd love for you to share like, you know, what, what's working for you, what's not working for you, like what's the inside scoop (laughs) (laughs) and being a creator and an entrepreneur. I wish that I could have a really snappy answer to this question, but I want to tell you the truth, Sarah, and that is that I think women don't have the time we need to create like just sort of period. And I would say, I'm not going to put that on motherhood. I would say motherhood has intensified this belief of of mine. Um, But so we can like hack ourselves all we want. You know, we can like create rituals and talk all day long. And I will definitely tell you what's working for me. But at the end of the day, I think um, that's, again, something we need to address societally not just individually. And it, you know, it's a, it's a multi kind of pronged process of like talking about invisible labor, uh, invisible labor in the home and like why women are still not able to have. And again, you know, time is like, maybe nobody has enough time to do what we want to do, but just quite frankly, like that is kind of the obstacle I am up against most of the time in coaching is like, you are doing all this childcare. How are we, you know, and you're trying to write a book at the same time and I'm coming up against the same thing. So I, um, you know, before my kid, I had like a great practice, um, of in the morning of like this beautiful long hour (laughs) that I used to do with including 15 minutes of creativity. Um, and, and it doesn't happen every day because I don't, you know, the home just doesn't allow for that. So. I can tell you, you know, like I, my kind of religion around showing up for your creativity is 15 minutes a day. It's just kind of like my prescription. It's like, we can all find 15 minutes, even if it's five, you know, three different pockets of five minutes, or even if it's just 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, not the same time every day. And I think for moms, especially, it can be great to just have like, what is the smallest amount that I can commit to? Because so much of the advice around day planning and creativity um, comes from men who don't have the same um, kind of responsibilities often around sort of childcare and, and things in the home. So it's interesting, like this whole conversation around deep work, which I really believe we need, you know, especially in the digital world, we need that time to wander and play and not be interrupted. And also the leaders in the deep work conversation are all men. And I'm not okay with that, you know? I mean, so I think um, you've you've kind of tapped into something that is just like so top of mind for me. And I don't have the solution, but I do want us to keep asking these questions, like both in our homes and also externally, because I, the reason I think it's a cultural problem is because we need the voices and the creative works of women to survive. 
as a, as a people, you know, to move forward. Like, I really think that women's creative voices are the single most untapped natural resource on the planet. And we're tapping into it. We all are. But what if we collectively could all tap into it? You know, what if culturally we prioritize women's creativity? What would the world look like? Yeah, I 100%. I think less violent. I mean, you know, and so, yeah, <laughs> there's my answer. Yeah, no, I, I I really agree with you. And also, like, one thing that, that has come really, like, sharply into focus to me, specifically since I moved to New York, specifically since my partner started his resident, medical residency program, is that the fact that the corporations are built on a history of men having a wife at home to take care of everything, right? It's like, not only does the amount of labor that is required of him during this phase in his career, like completely, um, like move past any type of physical health and mental health, emotional health boundaries to like even maintain himself as a person, but it, it leaks all the way into my life. And it's like this constant struggle with his, you know, toxic, career. And I know that that's not a unique experience. And I know that it's not just in the medical industry and the stories that I hear just from living here, you know, of like psychopath bosses. And this is, these are, these are structures that are just like, it's, yeah, we don't have a choice. Like they just are so all consuming in the way that they're set up. And, um, thank you for bringing this conversation. I think, well, by the way, I resonate. My husband's in the theater, which is not the same toxicity as the medical profession, but definitely is having its own revolution around um, the mental well-being and sort of wellness in general of its workers. Because I think sort of historically, and this is a larger, one of the larger myths we're disrupting around art too, is like that that people in some ways are sort of... um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, they don't really matter. It's like, as long as we make a great show, you know, and but we can, all your wellness is sacrificed. And it's so ironic in the medical field too, that that happens as well. But like, we're sort of sacrificing these great results on the people that are making them. But um, I think what you're saying about like, sort of so much of the creative work that exists in our culture and the structures and all the things that have been built exactly were built because there was support for the people who were building them. Uh, someone someone brought up the other day, like, I think it's, you know, Thoreau, gosh, was it Thoreau or Emerson who wrote on Walden Pond? What, okay, what, whoever it was who wrote on Walden Pond, my motherhood phrase is letting me remember, um, was able to have that deep space time alone because um, the women caretakers were bringing him food. Mm-hmm. So I think when we think about um, how to make it work, we have to totally reimagine everything. And we can't kind of attach the success of our creative work with these sort of like uninterrupted days because I just don't think that's what, (laughs) I don't think that's what it is. I'll tell you something that's working for me right now in a really weird way is... um, So trusting this creative flow process. So, you know, and again, flow states, (laughs) most of the people who do research on flow states are also men. So again, like I think uh, that the flow is a privilege, I will say. I think sort of to experience cycles of creative flow is a privilege in many ways. But something I do find really interesting about the creative flow cycle is that the first cycle is struggle. 
the struggle phase where we're sort of just working out the problem or whatever we're doing. And we're like, this is when we kind of want to quit sometimes and like go crazy and doubt everything. But the next phase is release. And so then what comes after release is flow, but struggle, release, flow. Um, Again, something I was never taught in my decades of training is actually like, you have to get out of the struggle and go release before you can experience these euphoric states were sort of promised in in the life of, of a creative path. And so I've been playing with what that release is. I mean, I would not say momming a toddler is release, but even if it's just like, kind of taking my mind off the thing, but sort of letting it work subconsciously kind of behind. Uh, I have found weird sort of some good results in just like being aware of the thing I'm working on, being clear on what I'm working on is so key for for parenthood because if I'm not clear, then I nothing can happen. But I can sort of then go about a day and I'm doing all this motherhood stuff. And then when I return to it, stuff has happened. Like think, you know, based, I'm in, interacting with the environment and there actually has been things that have incubated. I think partly because I'm starting to get clear that you can't just struggle through it forever. A, my life won't let me do that. And B, knowing that that's actually not the way the flow phase works actually has really kind of liberated me in some ways. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And please, for anybody who um, wants to learn more and dive into what you've got going on, where can they find you? And what are you doing right now? Well, if you want to dive in more, you know, one thing I would love is, um, yeah, I love to connect on Instagram. I mean, I do spend more time than I need to there, but I really do. It's a, I, I really value the conversations I have with people there. So I would love to just like, if something resonates, just send me a DM and I would, you know, I'd love to hear any of your listeners' perspectives um, on anything that we've been talking about. But what I'm working on right now um, is specifically a program. Um, it's called The Original Source, but it's really like a, a, a program about returning to your original creative voice. It's not about finding your voice because you don't need to find your voice. Your voice is here. Your voice has always been there, but it's about returning to it. And so much of this work is just like we've been talking about, just like removing the cultural blocks and sort of removing some of the outside blocks so that we can access what is already there within you. Um, But it's an eight-week program to complete a signature project um, or to bring a signature creative project to its next stage of completion. Because I find what I have found in my own process is we, you know, and I see this in my clients is like, you have this body of work that is wanting to come out of you, or you might be sort of in process of it coming out of you. But because of all the things that we're doing, parenting and client work and, house stuff and social media, you know, getting that, getting those sort of deeper works out of us is really a huge challenge. So this doesn't solve everything, but it does give us this kind of focus time um, to work on it. So that's really my focus right now. Um, And then I'm also incubating a program around kind of the second phase of my work, which is like, so that's the birthing of the creative work and then the amplifying of it, um, some work around that. So that's like in more of an incubation phase. Amazing. I cannot wait to see um, how that turns out. And I 100% definitely recommend working with Liz for any of you who are feeling cold. She is a powerhouse. Thank you so much for joining and sharing all of your wisdom with us today. And thank you very much, everybody, for watching. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you. For more inspirational content, head over to my website, withsarahmack.com. And please support the show by liking, commenting, and subscribing.